0: Hi my name is Matt Barnhill. Uh, It's really a pleasure for me to be here with you guys today. Uh, Kenny asked me some time ago if I would be willing to be a part of this series that you guys are doing and he asked me if I would speak on addiction. Uh, My background is in counseling and I've been doing counseling since 1983 in all kinds of different settings. For about 10 years I was working in inpatient uh, treatment centers for chemical dependency and psychiatric disorders and whatnot. So I, I hev- was heavily involved in addiction treatment during that time. But uh, when I wasn't there, I was working in outpatient clinics and church work. And uh, there's no shortage of addiction in our culture. A matter of fact, I was just looking for some updated numbers. There's an estimated 23 million people with substance abuse disorders in America, just America, not counting Canada, not counting Europe, 40 to 60% of those folks who seek treatment of the 23 million will relapse within a year. Addiction is a monster in our culture. Uh, That's not a word I came up with. I was just thinking, I'm gonna go and just do a YouTube search on addiction and recovery. Uh, and just see what some of the things are that come up on YouTube. One, you get a bunch of um, celebrities talking that are being interviewed and talking about their uh, journey of recovery. And more than once I heard celebrities use the word monster when they're describing the role of addiction in their life. Uh, there's alcohol and drug addiction, there's work addictions, there's porn addiction, food addiction, approval addiction, rage addiction just to list a few i I might add here punishment doesn't help punishing people who are addicted doesn't help um, many suf- many suffer for decades before they get help and sadly many people never get help and tragically uh, some people who don't get help die from their addictions depend on what their addictions are so Uh, addictions are a powerful thing Uh, there's something that y'all may or may not have seen before it's called the recovery New Testament and inside the recovery New Testament are these stories it says this Brenda began drinking when she was 14 and using cocaine at 17 she tried to quit many times over 20 years but alcohol and drugs had an iron grip on her finally when she realized how she was devastating her daughter and granddaughter Brenda looked for help. Mark was sexually abused when he was 5 years old, and when he was 11, he started stealing pornography from a drugstore. No matter how hard he tried to quit, his sexual cravings could not be controlled. His co-workers finally stepped in to stop his inappropriate relationships with the people he worked with. All the other women in Peggy's family were thin and beautiful, but when Peggy looked into the mirror, she felt fat. She starved herself and exercised compulsively. Her mother and sisters worried because she looked so gaunt, but the mirror still told Peggy that she was too fat. Brenda Kay enjoyed playing poker with her husbands and friends, but one trip to a casino changed everything. She began sneaking away to gamble money that was supposed to pay the mortgage, credit cards, and other bills. Soon her life, her marriage, and their family finances were in shambles. Margot had to be in a relationship with a man to feel good about herself. Without a man, she had no idea who she was. She felt lost. In fact, she was addicted to men. It wasn't the sex. It was that they met her needs and made her feel alive. When these relationships changed or ended, she fell apart. So you see from those stories, real stories, that addiction impacts all kinds of people in all kinds of places and all kinds of relationships from all walks of life. So I'm I'm gonna get out here early and say, addiction is a complicated matter. If anyone says to you, here's what you need to do, this is all you need to do, it's simple, and you need to do this, they don't understand addiction. Because if there was a cookie cutter approach, a thing that if everybody were to do that thing that worked for everybody, everybody would be doing that thing. But I have lots of people in the course of my 38 years of doing counseling who've done this particular thing that's been uh, life-changing for them and other people who did this thing. Some people who went to this treatment center, other people who went to the same treatment center and it didn't work and so forth and so on. So addiction is complicated. But i do want to leave you today with some kind of overall big picture principles that if you will integrate them into your life first of all you'll see that addiction is going on in all of our lives we're going to talk about addiction in some of the broadest terms because i don't want you coming away from here going oh now i know what to say or do or how to help those people i want you to begin to look at things going on in your own life and in my own life that causes us to go, oh, addiction has found its way in my struggle as well. And I wanna to start to give you a kind of an underlying understanding of how scripture might uh, reveal or show us how to think about an addiction. Paul is talking to the church that he helped plant and start and nurture in Corinth. And Corinth was a city, in case you don't know, that was uh, what we might liken to uh, San Francisco or uh, New Orleans. That was a port city that had all kinds of vices and struggles and social and cultural problems that uh, we, we might say New Orleans and San Francisco has in terms of social dilemmas, from homelessness to multi addictions of all kinds. Okay? So he's talking to this church in Corinth. And he says to them in the, his second letter to them, the 10th chapter, and I'm just going to pick it up in verse 3, where he talks about this one particular word that I think is revealing to us. And he says this, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary... They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So here's the word, stronghold. It's a biblical New Testament word that is reflective of a struggle. A stronghold. Uh, one, one commentary I read just simply defined it, defines it as a sin that has mastered us. It, it, it's contrary to the idea that we are mastering something, but something is mastering us. So it has the power of influence and control in our life, thus it's a stronghold. Well what exactly is this sin that's mastered us? Paul says in verse five, he calls it a pretension, a pretension, other uh, translations of scripture call it a lofty thing. And it literally is defined as something that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Now the word that we translate pretension or a lofty thing from literally means a partition. So if you would, think of, think of your mind as being a, uh, a room, a large room, and in that room are partitions. And the function and purpose of the partitions is to uh, cause one part of the room not to be distracted by another part of the room. So it's the idea that there is something raised up in our brain or in our mind or in our thinking that serves as a wall or a partition that keeps us from being influenced by all things from the Word of God or the truth of God. So strongholds are walls raised up in our thinking that prevent us from living by obeying, accepting, believing, trusting in, relying on the truth of God. So when Paul says that the weapons we fight this war are not weapons of the world, they're weapons designed to bring down partitions which enable the truth of God to have its way in our life. Strongholds in your and my life keep us from living being influenced by what God says is true. Because we think something is true that's not. Like, this will be fun. Or, you know, I'm bulletproof. Or a hundred other things that cause us to go, this is not a big deal. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to take this step. I'm going to do what some therapists call, I'm going to do a hundred suds. In order to get here and a hundred suds are a hundred seemingly unimportant decisions that we think aren't going to affect us that aren't going to ruin relationships there's some of you today that are listening to me talk and you're doing things right now in your life their practices their secrets their choices you're making right now that are not going to ruin something in your life until 36 months from now and you think they're seemingly unimportant decisions and you have low essay. You don't have high essay. You have low essay. You have low situational awareness and you have low self-awareness. So I want to give you a couple things that I think if you'll listen and you'll make application will raise your essay. And when it raises your essay, you'll be more capable of addressing effectively addictions in your life, and you'll also be more effective at helping others who have addictions in their life as well. I want you to think of your needs in three different categories. The first category is what we would call crucial needs. Crucial needs are needs that if they go unmet, we die. Now, we don't die immediately. These I'm not talking about food, air, and water. I'm talking about things that give our life meaning. Examples of crucial needs are meaning, purpose, hope, worth, and value. Those are crucial needs. The only place we can get crucial needs met is in our relationship with the one who made us. Only God can meet crucial needs. There's no marriage, there's no job, there's no church, there's no stack of money, there's no experience, there's no sunrise in Maui, there's no sunset. In the Himalayas there is nothing on the planet that meets our crucial needs beyond a glimpse if there were we'd all be doing that thing but there's not so those are crucial needs only God can meet them when they're not met we despair the the next kind of needs are what we would call critical needs now these critical needs are what I referred to earlier as relational needs these are the things we hunger for the most They're critical. Examples of critical needs are attention, approval, affection, acceptance, appreciation, respect, support, security, comfort, encouragement. Those are critical relational needs. By design, God has made us relational beings, which means we must have these needs met not perfectly but effectively in order to flourish now you don't die you don't despair from a lack of respect but you don't flourish either you don't despair from a lack of attention but you don't flourish either so these are significant needs God meets crucial needs but God doesn't meet critical needs people meet critical needs thus our need for community and connection i wouldn't attend a church that doesn't have small groups if you're not in a small group you're neglecting unless you're finding it some other way to have meaningful connection or community at this church although the large audience may be a place that meets some of your needs for community our needs are really met by smaller groups and even closer relationships that can ever be met in an audience in an auditorium. So keep that in mind. So the third kind of needs, and there's only three, there's crucial, critical. Critical needs are met by people. When they're not met, we don't flourish. The last kind of needs are casual needs. Casual needs. Casual needs are tastes and preferences around a thousand things as to how we want our world to go. Okay. They're literally, um, I'd rather drive a Ford than a Chevy. I'd rather go to this church than that church. I'd rather live in Sugarland than Richmond. I'd rather live in Houston than Dallas. I'd rather live in Texas than California, duh. I'd rather, uh, I'd, rather I'd prefer a hundred things. When a casual need goes unmet, it creates a disturbance in our life. If it's a small, insignificant, casual need, it's a small, insignificant disturbance. If I get caught behind the train at Highway 90, that's an irritant unless I'm on my way to pick up the lottery check or something. Then that would make it a big deal. Well, uh, but there are profound and large casual needs. I have a friend who was laid off at Schlumberger during COVID. Uh, he wasn't ready to be to take early retirement. He'd been there 20 some odd years. Well, that was a profound, significant casual need that is now unmet. So it created a huge disturbance in his life. So crucial needs are met by God. When they aren't met, we despair. Critical needs are met by people. When they aren't met, we don't flourish. Casual needs, we have the autonomy and freedom to, ha- to meet our casual needs however we want especially in a place like the United States of America where we have the freedoms and opportunities that we do. So in understanding you've got all those kinds of needs, all three of them, the most, this is important. This is the reason some of you are listening today. The most common cause of an anxious or depressed mood is when we take a need and put it in the category that it doesn't belong. Like when an 18-year-old kid says, if I don't get into Rice University, I'll just die. Really. You'll, You'll die if you don't get into Rice University. What he's saying is, if I don't get into Rice University, which is a casual need. Now, it's important where I go to college, but it's nonetheless a casual need. If I don't get into Rice University, I'll just die means if I don't get into Rice University, I can't feel good about myself, which is worth and value. He's taken a casual need and moved it to the crucial category. His anxiety or despair is caused not by not knowing whether he's been admitted or not. His anxiety or despair is caused by having placed a need that doesn't belong in the crucial category. He's taking it from here and putting it there. Or when a 40-year-old 40, a 40 salesperson says, if I don't close this deal, I can't feel good about myself. He's taken approval or reward or achievement and moved it to the crucial category. Or if a 45-year-old woman says, if my husband doesn't love me, I can't feel good about myself. And if that kid's a Christian, he'll go, oh, sweet Jesus, please help me get into Rice University. And I don't think Jesus is sarcastic like me. But if he were, I think he would say, excuse me, since when did Rice University climb up on a cross and die for your sins? Rice University has nothing to say about your worth and value. And what does that say about the other 5,000 kids who don't get into Rice University? Do they not have worth and value? And excuse me but your husband who says he doesn't love you anymore and loves someone else he has nothing to say about your worth and value you have worth in value because I say you do not because he ever said you do you don't have more worth in value when he does love you and you don't have less worth in value when he doesn't but here's the thing not if but when I get a need misplaced in a category that it doesn't belong doing that creates anxiety. Doing that creates a depressed mood. And here's the principle. When anxiety goes up, clear thinking goes down. When depression worsens, clear thinking goes down. The more anxious or depressed we are, the more impaired our judgment is. Now here's the physiological part of this. Think of your mood right here as this is a stable, healthy mood. When it's above this midpoint, it's an anxious mood. When it's below the midpoint, it's a depressed mood. The brain, when our mood is anxious, the brain is trying to soothe. When our mood is depressed, the brain is trying to stimulate. Nothing is more powerful or effective at soothing or stimulating the brain than the things we get addicted to our addictions are connected oftentimes to misplaced needs that have now created an anxious mood or a depressed mood in our life people come in and they say I drink too much I do this too much I'm addicted to porn little do they know if you want to deal with that you're faced with Facing your anxiety or your depressed mood because you're using those things in some form or fashion To soothe an anxious mood or stimulate a depressed mood You've got to be willing to face that to look at it to address it It's not enough to just get sober And here's what I would say to you about what God's up to in your life He loves you far more, and He cares far more about you just not drinking too much. He wants us to be healthy with needs that aren't misplaced where they don't belong. He He wants far more for us than to just be sober or not to be addicted to food. He's not interested in us being thin so He can feel better about us. He's not interested in us not being gluttonous, just so we're behaving. He wants us to experience the health he's designed for us, and addictions keep that from happening. And he hates things that harm the people he loves so much, and that's you and I. So what do I do with all this? In light of that, what do we do? Well, here's the first thing I would say we do. We do one, cast our anxiety upon Him. Paul says in Philippians 4, and this is from the message. I love the way it's worded. He says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness Everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So the first thing we do is cast our anxieties upon Him. The second thing we do, you're not going to like this quite as much. The second thing we do is to let the consequences of our addiction change us. Let the consequences of our addiction change us. From Hebrews chapter 12, there's this great passage about God's discipline in our life. And it goes like this. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son goes on to say endure hardship as discipline god is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline then you're not legitimate you're not true sons and daughters at all moreover we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it how much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The most common consequence for addiction is ruined relationships. The most common consequence of addictions is ruined or impaired or impacted negatively relationships. When you're intoxicated, you're not loving. I've told more than one counseling client over the years, mostly men, but not always men, I've said, listen, she's not divorcing you because you drink too much. And one guy who was really funny, he was quite the party boy. He said, well, you must not have been listening very well because she said very clearly and at the top of her volume that if I keep drinking, she's kicking me out. And I go, yeah, I know she said that I heard her say that, but she's not divorcing you because you drink too much. She's divorcing you because when you drink, you're not loving. If you could somehow figure out how to drink a lot and still be loving, she wouldn't divorce you. But here's what happens. In our addiction in our intoxications when they go up our empathy goes down so when we're living in our addictions people are experiencing us as living with narcissists low empathy high narcissism high narcissism little love because narcissism means you don't get how you're affecting others you don't you don't know what it was like to To see you passed out or to see you uh, wrapped up in some sort of addictive behavior, no matter what it was, that was designed to either soothe your anxious mood or stimulate your depressed mood. That's got to be faced because it's ruining relationships. The last word in that passage I read to you it says later on however it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for everyone no not for everyone but for those who have been trained by it the word trained literally comes from a word that we translate to mean sober-minded it means to be free from the influence of intoxicants to be free from the influence of intoxicants that's why People can go through so much and still not make necessary changes because they refuse to be trained by the consequences of their addiction. That's why three kids can grow up in the same home, receive the same discipline, and two of them can submit to it and be trained by it, and another one can resist submitting to it and not be trained by it, And not have what the scripture calls a harvest of righteousness and peace in their life. But instead have turmoil and tension and broken relationships. The ego says find something to do to distract. That's what we call denial. Addictions, as problematic as they are, are not the biggest problem. You know what the biggest problem is? It's not your problem or my problem of addiction. It's our reluctance to face our problem of addiction. Our marriages and our families don't bust up because we have problems. They end and they bust up because we don't face our problems. Pray for courage. Pray for courage to face this. We need more courage than we need insight. We need more courage than we need smart people around us. We need a boatload of courage. What do we do if we want to change? Well, What I'm about to tell you is not going to be everything you need to know to deal with addictions in your life or the lives of the people you love. But I'm telling you, this is a place for us individually to start. I can guarantee it from my own personal life. And I can guarantee it from being in this in this uh, treatment business for 38 years and here's what it is if we want to change there's two things that need to become a part of our life in an endearing and a powerful way and they are this we must fast and pray I know you were hoping for something sexier and a little more uh, appealing but we must fast and pray nothing breaks the power of an addiction more effectively than to fast from the addiction and here's all I mean by that I mean start fasting counting the days one by one and living them living those days one at a time and start counting those days I've gone three days without doing my addiction start fasting start praying living your day one day at a time and ask for help. The first place you ask for help is in your prayers. And many of us, many of you have already done that. And you're still stuck in your addiction. So you're gonna have to broaden the circle. I'm gonna fast and I'm gonna continue to ask God for help and I'm gonna start asking people for help. And I'm not gonna stop asking people for help until I find the people who provide the help I need. Humility is always the beginning of personal transformation in all of us. Humility is always the beginning of personal transformation in all of us. Without humility, pride and ego and denial will continue to rule the roost in our lives. This is from Psalm 25, verses four through nine in the message. Listen to this. Show me how you work, God. School me in your ways. Take me by the hand, lead me down the path of truth. You are my savior, aren't you? Mark the milestones of your mercy and love, God. Rebuild the ancient landmarks. That's us counting days. Forget that I sowed wild oats. Did you even know that was in Scripture? Forget that I sowed wild oats. Mark me with your sign of love. Plan only the best for me, God. God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected, sends them in the right direction. And listen to verse 9. He gives the rejects His hand and leads them step by step. AA has 12 steps. I would suggest to you that you'll need those 12 and about 740 other steps. You'll need steps every day. I need steps every day. The humility that will drive this by fasting and praying says I'm gonna break the power of this addiction and I'm gonna do it through fasting from the thing I'm addicted to and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask for help and it's gonna show up in a life of humility, praying, asking for help, and fasting from the thing. And not if, but when I relapse and when I fall, I start over and I recount. Uh, one of the most common questions I ask in a counseling session for people who are addicted, say, to alcohol, is I'll ask, When was the last time you strung four weekends together without drinking? And they'll say, Oh, it was a year or two ago. And if their spouse is sitting there, they'll go, It wasn't a year or two ago. Uh, and it wasn't four weeks; it was two, maybe two and a half weeks. Start counting them, and if you have your own relapse prevention plan and it lasts about six days, then realize you got about the wisdom you need for a six-day, for a six-day uh, sobriety from that which you're addicted to. And if you want to, if you want to go longer than six days, you're going to need some help because all you got is six days. Your wisdom, your plan, your smarts will last six days. So ask for help. If you want to go 28 years, you're going to need to talk to someone who's done it for 28 years. And I know both. I know people who've done it for 28 years and I know people who, as you listen to this, are on their seventh day. And each day they're a little healthier than they were the day before. And they're breaking the power of an addiction in their life. Fast and pray. ultimately you're gonna you're gonna pray this prayer God how would you have me agree with you concerning this issue in my life how would you have me agree with you concerning this addiction or this issue in my life then you listen and with great humility you do what you learn you do what you learn and you begin that learning process by fasting and praying, asking prayer. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. The opposite of addiction is the healing of your community. It's the healing of our relationships. That's what God's going for. He wants something far more in your life than you just simply not to have that thing you're addicted to. He wants you to have the healing of your relationships, which ultimately will be a healing of your family, a healing of your community, a healing in our church, a healing in in our city. It's, It's amazing where it could go. We're gonna fast and pray. Let's pray right now. Father, we do just that. We pray that you would show us how you would have us agree with you concerning the addictive behaviors and the addictive thinking in our lives. Show me what I do, Father, to soothe my anxious mood. Show me what I do to stimulate my depression. Father, I need your help. I, I I need to know stuff I do not know. and I need you to fill the people around me with enough grace to join me in my journey. But give me the courage I need to be humble. Give me the courage I need to change. It's in your Son's name I pray. Amen.